That'll be a great time. Growing up, this is unrelated to anything, but growing up, I used to think it was called Monday, Thursday. Anyone else ever think that? <laughs> you, learn, you learn something all the time. Uh, speaking of things you learned this morning, actually, Johnny Burns just told me that I am in last place in the men's March Madness bracket. So I, a, a big core to what I love doing for men's ministry events is uh, you celebrate winners, sure, that's great, but you also humiliate the losers. And so <laughs> I am, uh, hey, I get to determine the prize or the cost, and so... Uh, maybe it'll be a great fun thing for me. I don't know. Who knows? But uh, Daryl Johnson, if you're in here, you're in first place. So that's not fun for anyone. Um, well, I have been a father now for, uh, for about 15, 16 months, 15 and a half, if we're counting. And this is my little Ellie girl. She was a visitor this week in my office. And uh, if you've been in my office, that's the only corner that's put together. Everything else is a mess. But she has just, golly, she's just been a joy. Oh, my goodness. What a just cutie girl. And I just, uh, she is such a joy. She eats with her foot up. It doesn't make any sense. I don't do that. I don't, Hannah doesn't do that. I don't know where she got it. But we, we just love this little girl. But one of the most difficult things about her, the thing that they, you know, they kind of tell you about, it. there's another smiley face. One of the things they do tell you about is they are really bad at sleeping when they're born. Did anyone know this going into parenthood that babies are just really really bad sleepers. I, I had an idea, but, but those for, this is her, her day of birth, her birthday, so zero birthday. And we did not sleep at all. And I remember being in the hospital with Hannah, and I was, uh, I think, 30 hours of no sleep. And I finally got to a point where I was like, oh, we get to go home, and I cannot, I didn't say this out loud, I know better. But I finally realized, we get to go home and sleep in for a day. Like, oh, it is going to feel so good to sleep. And that is so far from true. Like, so far from true. I instantly realized that is not happening. But this is what most nights look like. Can you tell at all what's happening there? That is me holding a screaming baby at 3 in the morning. <laughs> and I'll tell you, when you think about sleep training or figuring out how to get this baby to fall asleep, Ellie was terrible at sleeping. She's great now. But as she was, we were figuring out how to get her to fall asleep, we did this thing called sleep training. And there are a bunch of different methods. You can do cry it out. You can do the Ferber. Method. There are a bunch of different things. If you're a new parent, you've, you've looked into this. But, but we realized in these moments, it was really going to test how seriously we bought in to sleep training. How much did we believe that this was actually better for Ellie? Because I'll tell you, at three in the morning when she's screaming her head off, and you know, you know, you've read all the research, you know that you're supposed to just like let them cry. And then you, you just need to buy into it. You have to be committed to the process or else the process doesn't work. It will test how much you're committed to it. And we had that on like full blast screaming in our face all the time to see how committed we were to it. And I'll tell you, holding a screaming baby at three in the morning will, will show you what your true colors are. It'll show you how much you believe that this sleep process is actually good for you when you're actually waking up from a nice slumber and the baby is just screaming. It will test your commitment to this process. Today, we're looking at something similar. We're going to look at how adversity, now, it's a little different from a screaming baby in our story today uh, with, uh, with Judas and Peter and Jesus. It's going to be a little different. But, but when adversity strikes, you are really going to see your true character. You're really going to see how committed to this thing you actually are. For Judas, and for Peter specifically, for Peter, it's going to reveal some pretty interesting things about his commitment to what this process looked like. But today, we're going to see this. Adversity reveals our true 
faith. We'll jump into John chapter 18. It says this, and I have 27 verses. I promise it will not, I, I think I promise we'll go, well, it won't be really long, but we'll see what happens. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book, Brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Doesn't seem too promising. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Good grammar. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Judas said to them, or when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he answered, I told you this because I am he. Or I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Verse 9, this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Great child name if you're having a boy soon. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised that the Jews, uh, advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for being so good in, in all seasons in our times of trials, times of adversity, times of holding a screaming baby that you're trying to get to sleep. In the times of being on cloud nine, when life is smooth and life is going well, thank you for being faithful to us in all times. Thank you for your son. And as we're going to see today, God, thank you for the commitment your son had to go to the cross for us. We thank you for uh, bringing us here today. God, open our eyes to what you have for us in your text. Pray this all for your glory, for our joy. Amen. Again, here's our big idea. Adversity reveals our true faith. Where do we see it on the text? The first part is weak belief crumbles against adversity. It's going to be portrayed in two different ways, this weak belief that's crumbling. And it's actually in pretty surprising ways. So we see here Peter, halfway through verse 1, there there's a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, Went with lanterns and torches and weapons. Oof. So to paint the picture, there's a lot going on here. There's a lot at stake here. There's uh, some, some uh, the, um, commentators actually assume that this is close to either 200 or 1,000. People differ on what they think. But some of the language thinks that there's actually up to 1,000 soldiers coming for Jesus. And notice it's a band of soldiers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And really, it's people from around the world. So what, it's, what he's trying to say in his language is that he's explaining like the whole world is coming against Jesus now. And then he goes on, Simon Peter, having a sword, he draws the sword and struck the high priest's servants and cuts off the right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So we see Peter understandably frightened, understandably frightened about the the mass military coming to get Jesus. And he takes it into his own hands. 
He takes the situation into his own hands and draws a sword. Some people think it's a dagger, whatever it may be. He pulls something out and says, you know, I'm going to defend Jesus. And so sometimes disbelief or weak belief can lead us to fight the wrong battles. Do you see that with Peter? Jesus himself says, Peter, I have to drink this cup. Why would, I, why would I fight like that if I, need, if I need to drink this cup? Why would I not drink this cup that the Father has given me, Peter? It's what I'm here to do. And we know that this cup is going to the cross. That's coming. That's what Sharia talked about with Easter, Good Friday, uh, specifically Good Friday. The process, the journey to the cross begins in this text. But here specifically we see Peter taking it into his own hands and picking the battle that is just not the right battle to fight for Peter. We see Peter countless times making a variety of different mistakes. He gets a bad reputation in the Gospels, but uh, in a lot of ways, because he constantly puts, puts his foot in his mouth. He constantly picks the wrong battle. And then, as we're going to see today, he, he even goes on and, and denies Jesus. But, but sometimes disbelief or weak belief can lead us to fight the wrong battles. And I'm curious if anyone here has ever cut someone's ear off. <laughs> uh, that's probably not what it's going to look like in your life. I've never done that. I've I'm honestly never really been tempted to cut anyone's ear off. Even if I'm extra angry, that has not been a, a fight that I've actually considered picking. But in, in a lot of ways, we resort to something very similar to this. Whether it's with a sword or not, maybe it looks more like defending Jesus on your own terms. Here are a few examples of that. We have the Crusades, where people took defending Jesus into their own hands. And I remember, I don't know if this is as relevant nowadays, but when I was younger, this was a huge thing that I would talk to friends about who are outside the faith. They'd be like, well, how do you explain the Crusades? Man, yeah, that was some gnarly stuff where we're, we're trying to take it into our own hands. We're trying to conquer in the name of Jesus. The, we can look at other holy wars. We can look at theological disagreements. If you don't participate in Crusades or holy wars, we can look at theological disagreements that just get way more heated than they need to. Uh, that is what seminary is for. <laughs> we spend so much time in seminary just arguing way more passionately than we need to about a lot of these things. And here's the question that comes to my mind. How will they see Jesus unless I destroy them? If that question has ever come to your mind, maybe that's a good opportunity for you to think, maybe I'm taking this into my own hands. Maybe I'm picking the wrong battle. How will they see Jesus unless I destroy them? I need to crush them. And so I see really when Peter is having this weird, weird go back and forth with, with, uh, with Malchus, when he cuts his ear off, it's this opportunity for us to reflect on ourselves. No, you're not cutting any ears off, I assume. But potentially, you're cutting metaphorical ears off in different ways. I know I have. Again, seminary is full of these just ridiculous conversations where I need to defend good doctrine. The whole world is counting on me to defend this. And where did that idea even come from? I don't even get it. But, but for whatever reason, it pops into our head, and I need to destroy them. I need to crush them in order for them to see Jesus. And that is so misguided. That is so weak in my belief. Again, these last couple chapters we've been going through in the Gospel of John, go and love people. They'll know that you're my sheep by the love you have for them. They're going to hate you, but you continue to love them. And we trust the process. We trust the process that Jesus has us on. We trust that Jesus is good. We trust the sovereignty of God, and we continue on. But so often we, we draw a sword. Sometimes it comes to fight the wrong battles. Other times it leads us to denial. Here's the rest of the text 
in verse 16, but Peter stood outside the door. This is now the trial of Jesus. Fast forward about four verses. Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said, Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now contrast this with what Jesus has been saying and earlier in the text. We read it a little bit. They come for Jesus. Jesus says, whom do you seek? And they see Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm he. In the original, it literally says, I am. And he says that multiple times. But now we see Peter contrasted with Jesus. The way Jesus handles this is going to be significantly different than Peter. But Peter is going to be contrasted with Jesus where it's I am versus I am not. And he says, I am not one of this man's disciples, a servant girl at the door, a man who's loosely associated uh, or tightly associated, but at this point, he's loosening his association with Jesus all the more. Jesus, who is about to be bound and brought on trial versus Peter, who is just a guy associated. No one's going to kill Peter for this, most likely. His life is not on the line. The punishment for sin of the whole world is not on his shoulders. He's just associated with the guy. And a simple Servant girl says, are you this man's disciple? No. No, that's not me. A lot of times that's what denial looks like a little more. Oop, I skipped something. So he's standing around a charcoal fire. Here's the second time. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter was also with them. You remember from the first couple verses, Judas brings this band of soldiers and Judas is with the band of soldiers. We already know from what Jesus told us previously that Judas has already betrayed him. Judas is already stepping away. Judas is already with the opposition. Judas is no longer with Jesus. He's now with the opposition. Peter, in a similar way now, is with the opposition. Peter is no longer with Jesus. He's now with the people warming themselves, standing around the fire, warming themselves. And then in verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, this is now the band of soldiers in the courtyard. You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Second denial. Again, sometimes he's drawing a sword. Sometimes it, it's, it's overconfident, misguided, misbelief. He's, he's this overconfident guy who's going to draw a sword and defend Jesus from the mountaintops. So remember a couple chapters ago, he said, Jesus, I will die for you, and now around a fire, he's denied him a second time. He denied it and said, I am not a disciple of his. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man, Malchus, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again, the third time, denies that he's with Jesus. Sometimes weak belief comes in an overconfident sword draw, and sometimes it comes from just denying flat out. So it made me wonder, in what ways do we deny? Again, probably not with a sword. Uh, maybe, again, I don't want to put it past anyone, but probably not with a sword. But more often than not, our misguided beliefs can be inconsistent. We go from the sword to a simple moment around a fire. I was on a bachelor party. Uh, it was a COVID bachelor party, so 2020. And uh, it was a while back two years, three years, and um, it was actually, he was already married, and so we just celebrated his birthday and called it a bachelor party, but um, 
So we were standing around a fire, and one of my good friends, his brother, is uh, not interested in faith. He has no association to Jesus, and we're, we're literally sitting around a fire. And there's something special that happens around fires. You build connections, you bond. There's just something beautiful about camping and bonfires and all that good stuff. You just, you unplug, you get away. It is, oh, I stink and love it. But so we're sitting around this fire and uh, his brother has no association to Jesus. And he just starts talking about all the struggles he's been having in his life. He starts talking about all the struggles uh, in, 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 in relationships, in, in work, and he just continues to just unpack, man, I feel like I've been beaten up. And one of the coolest things, and I'm so honored to be friends with a lot of these guys, is four guys around the fire so quickly said, bro, you know Jesus. <laughs> you know Jesus is so satisfying. You know he's what you're missing. You know this. He's a guy who's been associated with the church but has nothing to do with Jesus now. And four guys, after the other, just consistently encourage him and say, Jesus actually is so satisfying that you can be sustained in those moments. When you're looking for meaning in life, when you're looking for trying to figure out what it looks like to restore these relationships, when you're feeling meaningless at work, there is a guy who can solve this. There's a man who can satisfy that, and his name is Jesus. And I was just so honored to be connected with these guys who, who are so confident to just encourage. But I think a lot of the time we do the opposite. I think a lot of the time someone's sitting around a fire, whatever your more metaphorical fire is, and someone comes up and they start sharing about struggles they're going through. And they start sharing about whatever comes to their mind. And we are so far from sharing Jesus with them. Again, we just spent it three weeks, 21 days, with this uh, Sharing the Joy initiative. Where we're encouraged to actually share <laughs> the joy that we have, that we've found in Jesus. Again, we're not trying to force you to do new things, put more on your plate. It's just go talk about what you love in front of other people. And I think a lot of the time... We'll be standing around a fire, and I should not go there. I don't want to ruffle feathers. I don't want to cause any problems. Like, you know, the J word is, like, he's very off-putting. Like, I don't want to talk about that. I think a lot of the time we have these opportunities that God is actually giving us. And we're not drawing a sword. But a lot of the time we step away, and we, we, we deny these opportunities just as often. So weak belief crumbles against adversity. But finally, the positive. True belief overcomes adversity. So Jesus steps forward knowingly and willingly. We have Peter. Again, it's a contrast from Peter who draws a sword and then goes straight to denying three times. Both are from a weak understanding, a false understanding of faith. A guy who's clearly on the journey. But now we get to see Jesus. How does Jesus handle adversity when it comes his way? Jesus stepped forward knowingly and willingly. Verse 3, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Quick point, lanterns. Kind of interesting that they're using light to come after the light of the world. But they don't have the same view of who this light of the world is. He came to his own and his own did not know him. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers from some officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Huh, I think I overclicked. Oh, so 
A few things to note. Again, band of soldiers, just the language of this text, it's encouraging us to think about. And again, a first century reader, I think, would know this language pretty well, but we are so far removed in a lot of ways. But a first century reader is going to read this and understand the gravity of this group. So he, we have maybe 200 people in here right now, maybe a little more. And so multiply that by about five. And now all of you against me. <laughs> this isn't like a little three-on-three basketball, like pickup basketball. This is like a serious force coming against Jesus. And how does Jesus handle it? Not the way I would have probably handled it. A little different from the way Peter handles it. It's it's easy to pick up your sword and start, start, start thinking about fighting back. But Jesus, with this band of soldiers and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went with lanterns and torches and weapons. They are serious. And Jesus, knowing what would happen to him, comes forward. We've seen this countless times already through the Gospel of John. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He makes a prediction. He says, one of you is going to betray me, and then Judas comes, and he departs from the upper room. We see, uh, again, um, in John chapter 3, all things have been given to Jesus. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He has this knowledge. He knows how this is going to play out. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? Now, he knows all of this he knows exactly what's going to happen. There's a silly, completely ridiculous game that I like to play with some friends called Would You Rather. Have you guys heard of it? <laughs> I heard an uncomfortable giggle. <laughs> mm-hmm. So here's a question for you. Would you rather be forced to sing along or dance along to every song that you hear? Who would rather sing along to every song that you ever hear? Who would rather dance along? Okay, not as many dancers. Would you rather be chronically underdressed or chronically overdressed? Who would rather be chronically underdressed? You were in board shorts and flip-flops to a wedding. Who would rather be overdressed where you're wearing a suit coat to, uh, to a pool party? The exact opposite. What a silly thing. Would you rather swim in a pool full of Nutella or a pool full of maple syrup? I know our Canadian friends would prefer one of them over the other, but who would rather swim in Nutella? And who would rather swim in maple syrup? Ah, maple, that's gross, all of you. Um, I would rather do neither. So here's one that I'd never have known how to answer. Would you rather know how you're going to die? or when you're going to die. In my mind, if I had the answer, if I knew that I was going to die from getting, uh, uh, say, a speaker's going to fall on my head, something, something is going to fall on my head, I would never, ever stand right here knowing that something, I would never go indoors. I would never walk next to a tall building. Uh, there are so many things that I would just absolutely never do because that's ridiculous. If you know you're going to get, you know, mauled by a dog, stay away from dogs. It's, it's not that difficult. Just like stay inside and live the rest of your life sheltered and don't go outside. But Jesus, knowing how, knowing when, confidently stepped forward so different from the way I think a lot of us would handle this. John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana, there's an hour coming. Jesus knows the hour. Jesus, knowing all things, And instead of running the other way, instead of saying, yeah, Peter, thanks for the distraction, I'm out. uh, Again, Jesus has some pretty pretty cool powers. He can kind of do whatever he wants. He could have easily evaporated. He could have uh, teleported. He could do whatever he wants. All these crazy things. Like there are so many things that Jesus could have done to get out of this. But instead, he steps in confidently and he comes forward. Again, something that I would never have the capacity to do. Something Peter clearly did not have the capacity to do. Jesus stepped forward knowingly and willingly. So Jesus, knowing all that would happen, came forward and said, whom do you seek? 
They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am. Jesus who betrayed them, sorry, Judas who betrayed them was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who do you seek? Jesus, I am. This is a more informal I am statement, but again, the picture that John has been painting this entire book so far, a reader who's reading it in the context of the whole thing is gonna hear these I am statements and just be drawn to it, and it's almost like Jesus just defining who he is, Jesus just acknowledging who he is is powerful enough to defeat them. They draw back and fall to the ground. It's almost like just speaking he has power over them. He knowingly and willingly went forward. The man who has all power, the man who could, he could have said more than I am. He could have said, turn around and leave. He could have said, you know, zippity do whatever, you know, Amranya Exame. He could have said whatever, whatever he wanted. He could have done whatever he wanted, but he confidently goes forward to drink the cup. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them, verse 7, sorry, I don't know why this isn't bold, but I made a mistake. So verse 7, so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. So they drew, then again, Peter draws the sword, and Jesus says, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This man with all power, this man who just by opening his mouth Cause this multitude, again, this isn't just three-on-three basketball. It's not like a fair fight here. It's up to potentially a 1,000 people. And Jesus just completely overthrows them. But he steps forward confidently. He could have gotten out of this, but he confidently steps forward. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus stepped forward knowingly and willingly. And he showed integrity and confidence in the face of adversity. He was confident and he was transparent on trial. So they bind him to fill in the gaps here. They bind him and they take him. He steps forward and they say, we're taking you to the high priest. And now he's on trial, confident and transparent on trial. Verse 19, it says this. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them, that they know what I said. Jesus is now being questioned. Tell us about your disciples. Tell us about your teachings. And Jesus is very clearly saying, hey, I mean, all the information's out there. He's an open book. He's telling them, I don't have to, I'm not keeping secrets here. I'm not trying to say one thing publicly and one thing in private. I'm not this, this uh, flip-flop kind of guy. I'm not, I'm not just doing one thing and saying another. I've been consistent my entire life. Look at, look at what I've been, ask the people I've been with. Ask the people who've heard me in the temples, in your own temples. Ask the people in the synagogues. I, I've been very open. I've been very public about this. Jesus says, I'm an open book. Here, I've been consistent. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I've said to them. They know what I've said. How's that taken? <laughs> Not very well. When Jesus said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said's wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said's right, why do you strike me? Now, the nature of this trial is completely bewildering to me. Again, we have, 
this contrast of Peter either fighting or flying. He either draws a sword or turns and completely runs, but then we have Jesus, full of integrity, confidently stepping forward, knowing what he's stepping into, knowing, knowing the final score, knowing how this whole thing ends, and he still confidently goes forward. The nature of this trial is bewildering to me. One of the things that stands out is verse 19. Jesus is bound and brought to the high priest. 19 says this, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered. Now, quick trivia from the text. Who's the high priest this year? Caiaphas. John tells us Caiaphas is the high priest. So the high priest then questions Jesus. Again, Caiaphas, allegedly, questions Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answers, I've spoken openly to the whole world. Why do you ask me? Fast forward down to 22. Is that how you answer the high priest? And he gets smacked. 24. Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. But who did Jesus just get asked questions by? But then Annas sends him to the high priest. So the high priest was not there. I think what's going on here is John is actually trying to get us to think because we know Caiaphas and it is a familial thing, but Caiaphas is the high priest, but also it feels like Annas is the high priest. And I think what he's doing here is actually making us ask the question, wait, 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 who's the high priest? Is that how you answer the high priest? Smack. Now Annas, (laughs) the high priest, priest sends him to the high priest? I think what he's trying to do is get us to ask the question, who is truly the high priest? It continues on. Who's the high priest? It continues on. Why do you ask me? I've said nothing in secret. Why are you asking me? And then he gets smacked. Why, why are you striking me? Who's asking the questions in this interrogation? Is it the high priest? If, High priest questions Jesus, but he doesn't tell us anything. John's recording a lot of mystery around this trial where Jesus is actually the one interrogating here. The true high priest is actually the one with questions here. The true high priest is the one who has all authority. He speaks and the soldiers crumble. I think a lot of the time I look at this story and I'm like, oh man, it does not look good for Jesus. This is not looking good at all. But again, Jesus knowingly and confidently and powerfully and authoritatively stepped forward. And he was bound on his own accord. Peter draws a sword. Peter denies. But the guy who has complete power, complete authority, confidently steps forward knowing the cup is coming. So Jesus showed integrity and confidence in the face, and he did all of this alone, just like he said he would. This is back in chapter 18. Oh, no, that's supposed to be chapter 16. Jesus answered them, 1632. He says, behold, the hour is coming. This is in the upper room with his disciples. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you'll be scattered, each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. Yet, I'm not alone. The Father is with me. It's a fulfillment of John 16. <laughs> it's so interesting in this. Don't, don't worry too hard about reading this. I just want you to see colors. This is John chapter 18. Blue, red, blue, red. I'll explain in half a second. 
What John's doing in this chapter is actually telling a parallel story. Kind of like Finding Nemo. Are you guys familiar with Finding Nemo? It's a parallel storyline. Don't laugh at me, Johnny Burns. It's a parallel storyline where Nemo goes to touch, I'm going to say the boat, but if you've seen the movie, you know what he goes to touch. He goes to touch the boat, and then his dad Marlin spends the whole rest of the movie trying to find him while Nemo is on his own adventure. Marlin's off on his own adventure. Two different storylines, but they're overlapping, they're interweaving, there's a lot going on, and then they finally come together at the very end. The first storyline here in John is Peter's denying. And then the second storyline is Jesus, full of authority, willingly willingly and confidently steps forward. And in this trial, where they don't bring in their own witnesses, Jesus actually says, here are some witnesses. Here here are the people you can talk to. Go talk to these people. Hear if my story is consistent. He's putting the onus back on his witnesses. And in that very same moment, the witnesses, his own people, have deserted him. Again, he goes alone. He goes alone for the people who have deserted him. He goes alone for the people who have had uh, poor expressions of faith. He goes alone into this trial where he's about to be beaten, abused, and then Good Friday comes. It's this parallel storyline where it's all coming together the very moment, the very moment where Jesus steps forward willingly and confidently is the very moment where his disciples abandon him and deny him. And in Finding Nemo, there's a happy resolution. Marlin and Nemo find each other. That's a great thing. But in this, the trial doesn't look too promising. We do know how it ends. It is a glorious, beautiful, powerful thing. But we feel the weight of Jesus going alone, confidently, handling adversity with integrity, with confidence, with willingness. True belief overcomes this adversity. So what do we do with this? We take note of how adversity hits us. When you're, when you're, when you're holding this screaming three-month-old and you're trying to figure out how confidently do I hold to this sleep training thing. When you're walking through life and you're standing around a fire with friends, when life gets crazy and you get a smack in the face, literally or figuratively, when a friend betrays you, when something happens to your family with health or just relational dynamics in your family aren't going as you want, when adversity hits you, how are we responding? Do we deny? Do we draw a sword and fight? Or do we handle with integrity and confidence? We can't handle adversity the way Jesus does without being firmly rooted in Jesus. I think a lot of times we like to kick Peter and say, what a silly you know, knucklehead. What a loser, that Peter. But really, how could he have been confident in Jesus? Yes, he did have three years. I don't want to get him off the hook for that. He had three years of living and walking with this guy. But at the very same time, Jesus was not his risen Savior yet. As, as, as Peter's walking through life, trying to trust Jesus, Jesus has not died, has not resurrected yet. How could he have that confidence in Jesus? Again, he walked with him for three years. Don't hear me uh, diminishing that. But at the very same time, he didn't have a risen Savior to cling to. So how could he have handled adversity with confidence like Jesus without the power of Jesus yet? Hmm. So for us, how are we supposed to handle adversity without Jesus? We have to be rooted in him. It's so easy to take a sermon like this and say, 
go be more like Jesus. Or, or even align more with Jesus. Oh, I really feel like I'm Jesus in this story. Well, that, that role's already taken. And I think a lot of the time in these stories, we actually are supposed to align more with the bad guy. Align more with Peter. Now again, I don't think you've drawn a sword and cut anyone's ear off. And my hope and prayer is that you haven't denied Jesus around a campfire three times. But I think it's shocking for us to actually feel the weight and say, man, I actually associate more with Peter in this story than Jesus. I actually associate more with the guy who denied Jesus time and time again in a variety of ways. But because of Jesus, we can confidently step into adversity. We can confidently step into trying times and difficult seasons of life and trust that God is good. We seek to respond to adversity with confidence and with integrity because of what Jesus has done. Because of him. Again, with a sermon like this, it's easy to say, go try harder. Go handle adversity better. But I think the actual application here is be rooted in Jesus. Be tighter with him. And when life gives you lemons, we trust him. We trust him in all things. So this whole story about the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus, Peter missing the point time and time again, I think the most arresting question for us is actually, whom do you seek? Are you seeking the I am? The one who with the power of his voice can overturn armies. Are we seeking ourselves or anything else? Are we clinging to Jesus? Are we seeking him above all else? Or are we seeking ourselves? God, thanks for being so good to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Gospel of John and how it opens our eyes to the character of you and the character of your son and the character of the Spirit. Thank you for being the true, powerful, authoritative, willing, confident God who handled adversity, who handled this difficult time, who handled armies of the whole world, of spiritual forces, of material forces. Thank you for being the God who overcomes all of it. We thank you for this season coming forward as John shifts into the cross and Jesus begins his journey to the cross and we here in 2023 get to look forward to the cross. Thank you for being so satisfying. Thank you for being the one who did live a life that draws us into you. We pray this all for your glory, for our joy. Amen.